And do please find a Bible and turn with me to Job chapter 38. And that can be found on page 538 in the Bibles. And we were going to read from verses 1 to 18. So page 538, Job chapter 38, starting from verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together... And all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud ways halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Thank you very much, John. Do keep that passage open. There's a lot in there. Um, just in case you haven't spotted already, we've got a very special guest today. You'll spot him uh, on the way out of, of church at the back. Um, he's here to offic- officially open our new loos. And uh, I want to say a huge thank you to so many people who have actually worked really hard um, to get to this, this uh, special day. My, my, my son went in and he gave the loos a 9 out of 10. Sorry, Stu. It was basically because the, the lock was just a bit stiff, but I think given time, that'll loosen off and it'll be, be up to a 10. So, so thank you very much indeed uh, to all who've been involved in, in that. Well, when I first read this passage today, I didn't have a clue what it was about. Hopefully I do have a bit more of a clue uh, now, but we do need to pray. So let's do that. Our Father, we uh, pray for the presence of your Spirit 
in each of us um, this morning so that we might understand uh, this passage and all of its uh, wonderful and sometimes shocking truths. And we pray that we would learn to bow in humility before you, our great God. Help us, we pray. Amen. Interviewer. You walk up to the pearly gates and are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him? I'll say, bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? In that interview, Stephen Fry articulates very strongly what uh, many people feel, whether like him, an atheist, or even a believer who sees suffering in this world and experiences suffering uh, in this world. We sometimes harbor grave doubts. We need convincing that this is, that this world is a well-run world. And that's Job's problem too. Job is a believer. We, we saw that last week in chapter 1, and I need to get us up to speed on the story, actually, so we can understand it. But three times in chapter 1 with, and 2, we're told that he was blameless. He's a person of integrity. What you see is what you get. He's not perfect, but he's not a hypocrite. So Job experiences what is really a terrorist attack, and a natural disaster all on the same day. He loses his home, his livestock, he loses his sons and his daughters. Can you imagine? And how does Job respond? It is really very remarkable how he responds. He worships. So in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worships. And then, as we move into chapter 2, Satan comes to God. And he says, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, as long as you have your health, that's what matters. And how true to life this is. We hear people say this all the time, don't we? As long as you have your health, then everything is fine. So God permits Satan to inflict Job with painful, painful sores right from his head down to his toe. But still Job doesn't curse God. He says to his wife, shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? The verdict in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. See, Job is quite a remarkable believer. But the book of Job doesn't end at chapter 2. Three friends rock up and try to convince Job that his suffering is caused by his sin. Job knows that's poppycock. And he wants God to come and to vindicate him. By the way, what we're seeing here in, in Job, the innocent sufferer, is a picture of the perfect innocent sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Okay, then, Job was innocent, and yet he suffered. And that is a big surprise. Nearly everyone with a moral seriousness about them believes that life gives you what you deserve. So, if my life is good, it is because somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Or if life is not good, it's the reverse. Somewhere, I must have done something really rotten or very wrong. And this is what Job's three friends and Job himself believe. This is their theology. They believe, one, that God is sovereign, that he's supreme. Two, that God is just. Therefore, three, that he will reward good and punish evil. So, four, if I experience blessing in my life, then it must have been because I've done some good. And if I experience suffering in my life, it must be because I've done something uh, bad. I've been a naughty boy or girl. And that is the theology of Job and his three friends. And it is what many people believe still today. But it causes great perplexity for Job because there's a problem, and the problem is the evidence. Job knows that he's innocent. He knows that he hasn't done anything to deserve the terrible life that he has now. He can't understand what God is doing, and so Job sins. Job does not suffer because he sinned, but when he suffers, he then sins. And he begins to accuse God. The root of it's there in chapter 3, but the sinful fruit of it really comes out in chapter 9, when Job says things that he really shouldn't say, and he accuses God, he accuses him of having it in not only for the wicked, but also for the blameless. And he accuses God of of mocking the innocent who are despairing. Job says things he shouldn't. He crosses a line. I saw a friend this week who was telling me about a sportsman who crossed the line with, with the ref. And he said to the ref, Am I allowed to think you are an idiot? Yes, said the ref. Am I allowed to say you're an idiot? No, said the ref. Okay, in that case, I think you're an idiot. (laughs) And he was sent off, of course. He crossed a line. And Job has crossed a line a line. And so as we get to chapter 38, right the way through to 42 at the end of the book, God comes and lovingly confronts Job. And perhaps lovingly confronts us this morning too. As any of us are here thinking, look at the world and we think, well, maybe I could do a bit of a better job than God. And God answers Job in a long speech. It's a series of rhetorical questions, 70 of them in total. And the Lord's aim is to persuade us that that trying to judge how he runs the world is kind of way above our pay grade. 
We lack the qualifications to even share an opinion about how this world should be run. And to persuade us too of the flip side, that the Lord alone is qualified and competent to run his world. We're going to zoom in just on the first part of the Lord's response to Job, verses 1 to 18. And the argument, I think, runs something like this. God has created a good and joyful creation with a limited and temporary place for evil. And he alone has the knowledge needed to govern his world. So here's the first part of the argument. The Lord has created a good and joyful creation, verses 1 to 7. So for the first time in the book, the Lord speaks to Job. And here we have unmediated divine speech that demands full attention. The storm out of which he speaks speaks of his awesome presence. Perhaps also it's a nod to the storm-like character of Job's life. And right off the bat, the Lord challenges Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge, verse 2. See, this is no Wizard of Oz God. This is the Creator speaking. Job, you're operating above your pay grade. Your questions, your words are ignorant words. Job, brace yourself. Man up, Job. I've got questions for you. So the tables are turned. First, Job questions God, and now God questions Job. So verse 4, where were you, Job? When I laid the earth's foundation. Wonderful poetry in this uh, part of this, this chapter. The Lord pictures the cosmos as a building project when he is the architect, the surveyor, and the builder. He laid the earth's foundation. He marked off its dimensions. He stretched out a measuring line across it, set its footings, and laid its cornerstone. In other words, God made this world as an ordered world with physical regularities like gravity and predictable biological and chemical reactions and with moral regularities like people having a sense of justice and right and wrong. The creator knew what he was doing and he knew why he was doing it when he made this world. And so he takes exception to Job and to his words Tell me if you understand. Surely you know, Job. Words are dripping with sarcasm. See, if Job was there, if Job understood well then, he would then be competent to crit God on the way that he runs his world. But patently, Job wasn't there, and apparently Job doesn't understand. He speaks from a place of absolute ignorance. He speaks, first to words without knowledge. But those who were there, the angels, well, how did they respond? All the angels, verse 7, shouted for joy. See, because of his suffering and all of the evil that he saw around, Job had a jaundiced view 
of the world. But actually, evil is part of the Creator's plan. The angels knew this, and yet they still sing for joy. See, they knew that Satan and all that he has brought into this world, well, they knew that Satan was what the reformer Martin Luther called God's Satan. Not autonomous, but a creature created by God for his purposes, part of his good and joyful creation. Now, I know that raises a a bunch of questions, and the next section begins to answer that by saying that evil, secondly, has a limited place in creation, verses 8 to 11. There is a place for evil in the world, but it is a place with strict limits, And this comes out in the sublime poetry of of verses 8 to 11. So get yourselves in poetry mode. The picture changes from God as builder to God as parent. And his unruly child is the sea. Now you need to understand that the sea in the Bible is a symbol of disorder and chaos and evil and ultimately death. Look at the poetry, verse 8. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in, literally, swaddling bands. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. Just to paraphrase um, the commentator Christopher Ashe at this point, his Commentary is absolutely outstanding on on this this book. He says, picture the breaking of a mother's waters at the end of pregnancy and her baby bursting forth from the womb. But this baby is a monster. It's out of control. Except the parent is in control and puts this baby in clothes And then a swaddling band to protect him. Then he is confined to a playpen with doors and bars so that he cannot roam free and wreak havoc. So here is an unruly infant, restrained and constrained. And his parent says to him, verse 11, this far and no farther just like the way that cliffs fence in the raging sea. Evil has strict limits and boundaries defined by the Lord. Now let me say this very carefully. Evil is God's baby. Not in the sense that God is the origin of evil, not in that sense. That would be blasphemy to say that. But in the sense that evil is under God's thumb, posing as much threat to God as a newborn to their parents. Now, which would you prefer? 
a world where there were two gods, one good and one evil, never knowing who's going to get the other hand. Reminds me of a song when the devil takes on God and beats him in a game of poker. Is that the kind of God we, we want? Or a world with one supreme Lord who has the devil on his leash? Now, maybe you say, I, I don't want either of those. I just want the, the one supreme Lord and no devil. But then maybe you're falling into Job's error. Thankfully, the biblical portrait is of one God with Satan on his leash. I know it raises tough questions, but ultimately I believe it brings the pastoral comfort that we all need. See, just as important as realizing that there is one supreme Lord of the universe is to realize that there is a place for evil in his universe. Evil isn't out of control. Job thought that, but Job was wrong, and maybe we're wrong too. In some strange and mysterious way, the Lord permits evil for good and for glorious reasons. Now, of course, Job couldn't see the picture side of the tapestry. All he could see was the mess and the the knots underneath. But we are more privileged. We have a better view. We, we begin to at least glimpse the right side of the picture, do we not? As those who stand this side of the cross of Christ. See, the Lord permitted the greatest evil act the world has ever seen, the death of his son. Well, how? Well, he made the one who betrayed him. He formed the tongue that cursed and condemned him. He knit together the hearts that hated him. And he strengthened the hand of that soldier who took the hammer and drove those nails through him. God did not do evil at any point. But without him, all of that would have been impossible. But it enabled, didn't it, the salvation of men and women and boys and girls. And so in some strange way, evil reveals the grace and the glory of God. Just as a diamond is best viewed against a dark backdrop, so God's saving glory and grace shines out against the backdrop of evil. Now much mystery remains And much sickening evil and suffering. But I think we can say that we have at least glimpsed the top side of the tapestry. Now all this raises another uh, question. Evil has a, a limited place in creation. But does it have a permanent place? Will always, will evil always be part of this creation? Well wonderfully we know the answer is no. Thirdly, evil has a temporary place in creation. And as we move into verses 12 to 15, once again the imagery changes. Now in place of the builder, in place of the parent, we have God as an army commander. Earlier this week I I found out a friend of mine, Christian, is, is now a major general 
in, in charge of 10,000 uh, soldiers in the British Army, like the grand old Duke of York. I really want um, somebody to, to sort of challenge him to a fight and say, you know, you and whose army? <laughs> I remember just after university going to Corfu uh, with him. And uh, one night, there was three of us, and we were trying to get some sleep, and it was around about 2 or, or 3 a.m., and there were some people that came back from a club, and um, they were extremely rowdy and getting up to all sorts of shenanigans. So my friend got out of bed. He walked out onto the balcony in his, his boxes. You need to understand, he's sort of six foot five, and, and he just went, Shut up! And, of course, they started to speak back, and he went, no, shut up. And you know what? Well, we were inside just giggling away. (laughs) But we didn't hear a peep, not only for for the rest of that night, but for the entire entirety of of the week. It was just uh, wonderful. He just had that command about him, that natural authority. But even he can't do verses 12 or 13 or 14. He can't order the morning or the dawn. He can't speak to the sun and make it come up. Neither could Job, nor can you or I. I mean, the best thing I can do is command Alexa or Siri to wake me up in the morning. But each morning, God commands the sun to rise and it obeys him. Why does God do that? Verse 13, that it, the light, might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. Ever taken a tablecloth and flicked the crumbs out of it? I think that's the the idea. And when the sun rises each morning, figuratively speaking, that's what God is doing. See, in... Biblically speaking, in the Bible, darkness is the place of evil and suffering. That's why the Apostle John says the wicked love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Their acts are done in secret, but the Lord will bring them and their deeds to light. And you know, as the sun rises, the earth starts to take shape like a cookie cutter pressed into dough or clay under a seal. I had that experience on Tuesday morning as I made my way at some unearthly hour to King's College Hospital. All the buildings uh, were a grey silhouette as uh, I approached. But as, as I approached, the features began to become visible as the sun rose. I could begin to see the colour and texture of the hospital. And as I approached, which was for a a pretty minor op, but nonetheless feeling very sorry for myself, the rising sun spoke to me of a world to come where there will be no suffering, a world where there will be no hurt, no hospitals, no hearses. Every sunrise is a reminder. It is a reminder 
that the upraised arm of the wicked, all those evils that threaten to harm and defeat us, is, verse 15, going to be broken. And the major general of the universe has said so. Each new day provides cosmic proof that the place of evil in his universe is temporary. There is a day of judgment. We sung about it earlier when every wicked person, every rebel who refuses to trust in his glorious son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be crushed and broken. So God has set before Job a picture of a good, joyful and orderly creation with the ugliness of evil taking a limited and temporary place. But the question now arises, how can we be sure that it's going to work out? How can we know that Satan really is on God's leash and no autonomous power who will threaten God's, God's plans? Well, that brings us to the fourth plank of the argument. That he, the Lord, the Lord alone, is qualified to govern creation. Verses 16 to 18 take us to a place that no man has yet gone and returned. The place of the dead. It is a place beyond normal existence. Remember, it's poetic. And so to go there is a journey to the springs of the sea right to the bottom, to the recesses of the deep. It, it, in bis, biblical cosmology, it is a place which is deeper than the Mariana Trench. See, poetically, the place of the dead, Sheol or Hades, is found below the sea. That's where the gates of death are located. Have you been there? asked the Lord. Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness, Job? Have you understood the underworld, Job? That's what probably, probably what the vast expanses of verse 18 refer to. Tell me, Job, if you know all of this. Just another series of questions where Job just needs to put a hand over his mouth. He's got nothing to say. Of course he hasn't been there. Of course he has no knowledge of this place. For all the darkness of his suffering, terrible and extreme though it was, he doesn't even have a kindergarten knowledge of the universe compared to God. And we could say the same of Stephen Fry and Richard Dawkins and whoever else we like. The Lord, however, has exhaustive, infinite knowledge of every elements, including every extremity of his creation, including the place of the dead. Nothing lies outside of his knowledge. Nothing lies outside of his control. Nothing. And so what does this mean? Well, it means that he alone is competent, competent to rule his world. He alone knows what he's doing. He alone sees the tapestry, the right side up, and can judge whether or not it is better to have suffering and evil in his world. 
unlike Job, we know that one man has been to and right through the gates of death. Our Lord Jesus Christ has gone deep into the place of the dead, declaring his victory over death as he went. The Son of Man, writes Matthew, spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Between his cross and resurrection, Jesus Christ experienced death in the way that, unless he returns, every single one of us will experience it. His body went into the tomb, and his human soul descended to the place of the dead. And when he went there, he won victory over death and Hades. And three days later, he rose in triumph. So now listen to what Jesus Christ says to us. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And he offers those keys to us. He offers to unlock life from death. And so the deepest darkness need terrify us no more. He alone knows the way through death and shows us it. He alone, no one else. What a comfort that is to all of us who will face death and to those of us who've lost loved ones. Christ has triumphed. Christ has won victory on our behalf. For the person of faith, suffering and evil, Satan and death will not will not have the last word. And in the end, you know what? God will be vindicated. His goodness, his grace, his glory, we'll see it. And everyone who has crossed the line, well, they will be forced to put a hand over their mouths. Nothing to say. A university student went to sit the end of semester exam and he looked down at the paper and thought to himself, I can't answer a single question here. So he thought to himself, and then he wrote across the top of the paper, only God knows the answers to these questions. Merry Christmas. <laughs> During the holidays, an envelope arrived, and he ripped it open to see his exam mark. At the top, in big red letters, it read, then God gets a hundred, and you get Naught. Happy New Year. <laughs> Probably apocryphal. Maybe that's a taste of how Job felt as God lovingly confronted him and showed him that he alone is qualified to judge and to govern his world. And the presence of evil, terrible evil, indescribable suffering, and even including Childhood bone cancer does not negate that. God is the great builder of his universe and we're not. He is the in-control parent and God, Satan, has no autonomous power. And he is the commander who will one day break the arm 
of wickedness. This chapter forces us to consider the strange possibility that evil is created for the glory of God and that in some really mysterious way, darkness is needed to see the light of God's goodness. All will become evident at the end. But whenever we suffer and whenever we are tempted to cross the line, the best response really is just to put a hand over our mouths and then look, look to the cross. Let's pray. Our Father, there's much to perplex us about this world when we see the terrible suffering and evil around us and we're, we're tempted to ask why. We do ask why. We pray for your forgiveness when we cross that line and in our pride and arrogance have thought that we are competent judges of this universe. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to look to the cross and to see that there is a place where you have shown perfect justice, love, and you have shown the destruction of evil to come. Help us to look to that cross and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.